Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, strength coach. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, associate professor of the Kerrigan Institute, created the Flex Diet Cert. Still at home. Still at all. <laughs> uh, everyone, we just have sort of a build-up. This just happens these days. We've got some questions. We've got some uh, science news. You know what? Since it's, there's not a topic of the day, let me give you a quick rundown. I know it's in the show notes, but we've got stuff on the most anabolic kind of meat. Uh, we've got a question about branched-chain amino acids. Um, we've got a couple of Iron Radio news tidbits about how we're very, uh, in a very limited way, moving to video, um, partly. More stuff on protein, lifting, and your genes. And finally, uh, a massive review on do fish oils help athletes? Because it might surprise you, but there aren't big meta-analysis of this stuff. I mean, there are certain things that we just... No, I guess, you know, like protein, good, fish oils, good. Um, and we embrace that, but this is the first big review I've seen on fish oil. So that's what we're going to talk about. Let's get started with the, the listener. Um, this is not so much a listener question, but a news bit from a listener, Dave. Strength and muscle sport news. Uh, I got this through uh, Kayla. And I think she got it through Twitter, and I think Phil saw it on Facebook as well. This is from the website ergolog.com. If you're not turned on to this, everybody, I check this out every once in a while. I was actually um, introduced to this by Pep Wall, my gym owner. Um, Ergolog, they do a pretty good analysis. Like they'll make their own graphs of studies, and they really—they're not shy. They'll—they'll they'll delve into you know. Um, ergogenic aids and drugs and herbal extracts and all kinds of stuff. So um, anyway, this one, the title here is Why Chicken Protein uh, Contributes More to Muscle Anabolism Than Beef Protein. Well, contributes, I guess, is the key word. I, I went and I pulled this paper from the Journal of Food Science and Nutrition. It's actually a 2018 paper, so it's not a brand new paper. Uh, essentially, the gist is this, that chicken significantly increases indispensable amino acids in your blood, um, especially leucine, 
compared to beef. So the suggestion is if you get more of these indispensable or essential amino acids in your blood, like leucine, then it's going to be more anabolic than just eating beef. So uh, to me, this harkens back to the idea of eating uh, lots of different vegetable proteins. If you get a lot of variety and you up the dose, you know that it kind of makes up for it, I guess. But it is interesting at a fixed 25-gram dose that chicken ends up putting more uh, um, essential aminos into your blood. So pretty interesting stuff. I don't know. I think we're all just going to continue doing what we're doing, frankly, which is just eat tons of beef. But uh, some of the things that bodybuilders do, and I don't know if powerlifters are like this to the same extent, Phil, but bodybuilders live on chicken. And this sort of suggests there's a good reason for that. You know, uh, I always just considered it was just chickens leaner um, than most forms of beef, but interesting. <clears throat> also reminds me there's a new study about a mycoprotein, protein made from fungus, from mushrooms. Um, it looked like it may have some pretty good anabolic properties too, but I have no idea of price or anything else. It was just a small pilot study that just came out this week. Oh, that's interesting. Not, yeah, fungal. Yeah. I'm still not giving up my beef for mushrooms and chicken. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. That's what I, I mean. It's once in a while. Right. Yeah, yeah we're not going to really change. You need some variety anyway, you know. I'm not giving up the beef either. Uh, but it does remind me, I mean... It, it, historically, and Mike, you might agree with this. You know how we talk about, like, if you're going to make one dietary change, eat a nice 20 to 40 gram dose of protein four times a day. And if I do that with chicken, especially, um, I tend to actually start to get leaner over the weeks and that kind of stuff. Because, you know, you're filled up on a, on a low fat, fairly low cal uh, protein source. And especially this study suggests it's, it, it might be more anabolic, at least from the amino acid rush into your blood you know no wonder bodybuilders diet on that stuff and eat lots of it and i don't know so it's a good yeah. protein to clean up your act you know yeah also i think people tend to forget too that beef in general is a little bit fattier compared to chicken mm -hmm. you can get a chicken breast and it's pretty damn lean no matter kind of what type of chicken breast you get but one thing i always look at logs of people are being you know trying to get really lean or competitive is what kind of beef they had because it's easy to just log the wrong amount and get more fat than what you think, which most of the time isn't going to be a, a big issue, but if you're really trying to, to get down there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, chicken breast is pretty much chicken breast. I mean, it might be, yeah. <laughs> it might be brined or not brined. I mean, you'd have to be careful. I mean, if you're trying to avoid sodium, I guess you'd only be doing that probably if you were hypertensive or you had some particular reason. Um but, yeah, fresh chicken breasts have very low sodium. And the brine stuff you get in the frozen bags, they can be quite high in sodium. Um, oh, yeah. But but you're right. I mean, as far as, like, leanness goes, um, beef can be much more confusing. Um, how fatty was that beef you just ate? Was it 93% burger? Was it 90%? Was it that, you know, kind of crappy 70% stuff? Um And chicken breast is chicken breast. It's just funny that over the years, these tried-and-true things – We've learned by trial and error and some logic and science, too, what makes a better physique, I guess. Yeah, so interesting stuff. Thank you for that, Dave. Uh, our second question, I'm going to pose this to Mike first um, and then ask Phil if you've played with this over the years at all. Uh, from Dave, uh, this is a question about branch chain amino acids versus whey protein. Uh, it's an oversimplified question, but it's 
which is better and do I need to take branch chains if I'm basically drinking some whey shakes? What do you think, Mike? Uh, should you take branch chains if you're drinking whey shakes? Is that correct? Either instead of the whey or in addition to whey. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so probably neither. I mean, branch chains in and of themselves hasn't really shown to do a whole lot for at least in terms of trying to add more muscle, muscle protein synthesis. Maybe they're a little bit anti-catabolic. That's kind of, I'd say, highly debatable still. Uh, most, like a lot of supplement companies, have switched over to essential amino acids. You can get by with as little as six grams. There was a study done on that. It's quite old study now. Right. Yep. Um, whey protein, like our buddy Dr. Stu Phillips has shown, even 20 grams of whey protein has enough leucine, has enough essential amino acids for that process. You're probably going to be fine unless you're just really destroyed yourself in the the gym or you're older. It's one other study by blanking on the author now, but they showed that 40 grams is a little bit better after a, a full body intense session compared to just uh, the normal leg extensions that's done in the lab. Um, but either way, I haven't seen any data that branch chains would help that process anymore. Uh, I have recommended branch chains, however, if they're using a vegan source of yes. protein or they're just super high on soy or other things like that because a lot of times they are missing some of the branch chains and that could be helpful. Then. Totally, yeah. Totes. <laughs> Um, yeah. Similar thinking from me, right? I mean, I, like you said, Stu, uh, Nick Bird has said some stuff before too. Like yeah. if you just take the three branch chains, leucine, isoleucine, and valine, there's been a lot of speculation over the years about some magic ratio. I'm not a fan. I always just focus on leucine, uh, you know, as my favorite of the branch chain amino acids. But um, these are part of the essential or indispensable amino acids, the nine or 10, depending on how you define it, that Mike was just talking about. Taking them by themselves, Nick suggests that, you know, basically, and this is to use Phil's metaphor, it flips on the light switch. But if there's not a whole suite of other uh, essential amino acids around in that cell, protein synthesis is going to be pretty limited. So it's like flipping the switch and there's no electricity in the line. Um, And that's why I just think whey protein is a better source. I would never pop branch chains if I just chugged up (laughs) a scoop or two of whey protein. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah. have you ever popped aminos, Phil, just like between meals as sort of like a spare your muscles kind of thing without food? I think I did, but I, it was very short-lived. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, it's easier just to, if I'm going to, it'd be just a scoop away. It's fine, or a couple scoops away. So, yep. and I know I'm getting it all. I'm getting my BCAAs plus some. Right. So, uh, I mean. Yeah. This doesn't go away. I mean, a lot of people, you see bodybuilders walking around. I've seen students do it over the years. They're popping handfuls of capsules. Mm -hmm. And, like, you know, you could, you should just uh, bring a uh, powder in the bottom of a a shaker bottle and fill it Mm -hmm. up and just chug that down, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Years ago, I used to use the, uh, I don't know if anyone remembers the uh, Optimum Nutrition. Was it amino acids like 2222 or something? And it was these huge, like, uh, hard-pressed, like, horse pills that smelled horrible that were supposed mm. to be free-form amino acids it's to funny. get into your bloodstream faster. So, yeah, yeah I don't think they did anything. <laughs> it was, like, yeah. many, many years ago. <laughs> right. Now, I, you're right. With vegan clients, uh, I probably would be doing that. If, if you don't want to yeah. go to the extent of food combining and that kind of thing, or, uh, again, um, Stu Phillips has talked about this before. 
Uh, I've seen it in lit reviews. I've even presented some of this, you know, collective information. But um, yeah, spiking some pea protein or one of these other kinds of protein, rice maybe, or, you know, different things like that with some extra leucine might be helpful, you know, so. Yeah, because usually the, I've worked with a handful of vegan clients, not a lot, but usually trying to get enough protein in them is usually the hard thing. You know, if you've got a guy who can eat a lot of calories and he can take some type of vegan protein shake, it's not too hard. That's pretty easy. Um, But if you have someone who doesn't want to use a lot of supplements for whatever reason, they're on lower calories, they just can't eat that much food volume, eh, it gets to be pretty tricky. Yeah. Yep. Now, I do understand if you're a dieting bodybuilder, they might think, oh, well, I'm just going to pop just these protein synthetic things. But again, if there's no electricity in the line, in other words, there's not other amino acids in your blood and plentiful in cells for protein synthesis and all that kind of thing, yeah, it, it might not be as helpful. I know you're trying to go for almost zero calorie little protein synthetic boost, but a, a, a scoop of pro- protein, whey protein, 20, 25 grams, that's not going to make you fat in any way, bro. So just no. So just do that instead, I, I would suggest. But um, anyway. Okay. Moving on here. Um, as far as internal news here, just some behind-the-scenes stuff. One uh, – Next week, so if you're listening to this uh, at the very end of May, um, coming up the first week of June uh, 2020, the American Society of Nutrition, they made their meeting free because of the pandemic. Uh, and, and for professors, this cost a couple hundred bucks, uh, more than just 200 bucks. Uh, yeah, but, more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was a little painful. Now, they're, they're much better with the student fees, and that's why I always think that's yeah. actually fine. Gouge me a little so the, the students can go for, for less, you know. Um, but it's free because the meeting in Seattle was canceled, like everything else. Uh, they made it free. It's online. I would go check it out. Mike and I have a poster there with some students on HRV. Uh, the nutshell is that chronic – Caffeine intake from a variety of sources didn't really tank people's HRV, and you know Mike's the real expert on HRV stuff. But it was sort of interesting stuff. It's not acute; it's just chronic. You know, uh, over a several day period, we were just kind of looking uh, at people's HRV shortly after waking, and there just wasn't much of a correlation between people who liked their pre workouts or coffee or whatever, and, and those who didn't. The other abstract, and I, I, maybe I'll even do a separate little news video. We're, we're thinking about playing with videos here uh, and just kind of report on the conference in general. But I could talk about the other one we looked at was uh, how coffee, it, it's just hovering around statistical, statistical significance. But again, it's a low end. It's a low number of subjects. So that's pretty typical. But it looked like it, it might be some of the phytochemicals in coffee might be helping even acutely for young people to lower their blood sugar. Um, that one's a, It's a hard one to tease apart because we know chronically coffee helps with glucose disposal. You, you become a better carb handler. But acutely, because of the caffeine, it might actually harm your blood sugar. In other words, keep it high and not disposed into your muscles where it belongs as glycogen. Uh, anyway, we at least had some suggestion from that uh in the and it's in the abstract there's there's even some interesting additions in the poster that even in young people the coffee might be helping a little bit so uh it's not just for pre-diabetic you know overweight uh 50 year olds 60 year olds so anyway um 
as far as the videos that I mentioned, um, just to give everybody a heads up, Iron Radio, we're considering some occasional videos. This is not going to be a frequent thing because it's time intensive uh, compared to the audio where we all just plop down and wing it. But um, there is a practice playlist that I put up uh, with some pilot health news clips. So it's sort of an Iron Radio offshoot. Um, if you go to www.ironradio.org, uh, there's a YouTube button near the top. Simply click that. It's unlisted, this little playlist. So if you're listening to this, uh, check it out. What, I, what I'm asking people to do is actually give some specific feedback. Uh, like, for example, there is an 18-minute video there, and it's on basically hormones and COVID-19. So it's some of the stuff that we've talked about over the years on the audio podcast. But essentially what I'm most interested in is, A, practicing once <laughs> because we haven't done video before, so it's pretty awkward. But B, do you like the 18-minute format or do you like these chopped up like four to nine-minute kinds of things, like doing it hormone by hormone? Uh, so constructive feedback is appreciated. Again, you can go to ironradio.org and click on the YouTube link. Uh, we just want our people really commenting on this unlisted stuff because it's our first first foray uh, there. Oh, uh, quick warning. If you do that, uh, <laughs> I can almost feel your eye rolling from the beginning. You're like, wow, some of the suggestions you make from those studies, they're very easy. They're very simple. But I, I want our listeners to understand, as lifters, you're really rare, right? I mean, this is more of a gen pop uh, news clip kind of thing, almost like bring the message, you know, the strength and muscle athlete message to uh, a general, more general population. So you're probably doing a lot of these suggestions already, but I would appreciate some feedback. Uh, if we're going to do once a month kinds of things, then that's helpful. Uh, the news clip thing is, again, it's just testing the waters. We're also doing some uh, taste test and review type things with video, and we'll probably do that about once a month. The first round that we're going to do, we'll uh, looks like we're going to bring Michelle Blakely. She's been on the show once or twice before. Uh, and we're going to basically just try different things. So they're like uh, foods that have been modified in some way. To, you know, to be on a keto, a keto-friendly version of something. Or a high fiber or a, a protein snack. And we're just going to taste test them, rank them, rate them. Try to keep it fairly brief, too. Um, the podcasts are long, so... Uh, you could watch for that too, just to bring a little bit of value, I guess, to the to our YouTube channel. Because right now it's really just, a, of course, it, those of you who have seen it, it's just an Iron Radio splash page, and then it's just audio. Uh, it's just a backup. So, so there's that. Um, okay, one, two, three science studies. Let me do one before we go to break. This one is interesting because uh, Phil and I were just talking about how protein gets attacked fairly regularly. In fact, I've, I've had that problem very recently in the classroom where students will watch uh, some of these videos. The one that Arnold and, and Stallone did, um, it, it really confused some of the students, I think, that protein was bad and they don't need amino acids. And it's like, oh boy, you're, you're not understanding that message well. <laughs> that's, I don't think that's what they're saying. Um, but in any case, this study kind of sums it up. This is from Hudson, Joshua Hudson and colleagues, uh, brand new from Advances in Nutrition. Protein intake greater than the RDA 
differentially influences whole body lean mass responses uh, to purposeful catabolic and anabolic stressors. So this was a review and meta-analysis, so study of other studies. And essentially they're, they're asking, right, when you're under stress, not just hanging out, right, but when you're under stress, does protein above the RDA help? So it says under stressful conditions such as energy restriction and bodybuilders and physique athletes know about that, you know, harsh dieting drop from maybe, you know, 3,500 calories a day. You might be dieting down, ending a diet around 2,000 calories or something like that. Um, but energy restriction and they even include physical activity as a stressor. Well, that's a very purposeful stressor. That's what we do. Uh, anyway, so. Under stressful conditions like energy restriction and physical activity, the RDA for protein of 0.8 grams per kg per day may no longer be appropriate. We conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis, uh, and they looked at changes in whole body lean mass. So they are going right to the, the heart of the subject. So these researchers, they screened 1,520 articles, data from 18 studies uh, looking at comparisons in lean mass changes were part of the overall analysis. Here it is. Among all comparisons, protein intake greater than the RDA benefited changes in lean mass compared to eating that paltry 0.8 grams per kg. Um, on average, again, these are people under quote-unquote stress conditions of either dieting or training. Uh, greater than the RDA, attenuated lean mass losses after energy restriction. So basically preserved... 0.36 kilograms. I know that doesn't sound like a lot. That's like a, a pound. But on average across these different uh, studies during dieting, essentially, preserved lean mass. What else here? Increased lean mass after resistance training by 0.77 kilograms. So, you know, maybe a pound and a half or two. Now, under non-stressed conditions, no changes. And I think that's the point of this review is if you're dieting, and this harkens all the way back to like Gail Butterfield stuff, right, from the 70s that, uh, and 80s, where her and Pete Lemon would go back and forth a little. Do you need more protein or is it related to calories? You know, because her thing I think was more like it's you just need more calories. Um, well, if you're going to cut your calories, your protein demand is just going to go up. So for dieting and training, yes, more than the RDA. And this, again, a big meta-analysis. My God, 1,500-plus articles um, data from 18 studies, very specifically, with 22 comparisons of lean mass changes. So it's very specific. Um, you need more protein. <laughs> the RDA mm -hmm. is not enough. Uh, we've joked about this before, but if you have that roughly 40 grams of protein in a meal that I think all three of us talk about, that's like your RDA for the whole damn day if you're a smallish person. Mm -hmm. Pretty close. <laughs> um, but, it, yeah, it's shocking when you look at that. You know, like usually around 50 or 60 grams of protein on the day is what the yeah. recommended dietary allowance is. And, um, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. And yet it's constantly uh, being attacked. I, again, Phil, you, you, what were we just saying about? People are suggesting you just don't need as much, and you know there's been those documentary yeah, films. I'm looking at it right now. There's an article from the BBC that's titled, "Oh gosh, what is it? We don't need nearly as much protein as we consume," and it's basically saying the opposite that you're saying. You know, um, that the RDA is good and this and that. Yeah, 
you know, the average person is consuming way too much protein. And the context too, it's like when they put in the word need, it's like, yeah, you can stay upright and not push up daisies by having 60 grams of protein a day. But if you're trying to get better at lifting and adding muscle and doing other things, or if you're in a very low caloric <laughs> state, then it's a different context too. Yeah. yeah. Upright. That's funny. <laughs> that's a low bar. That's a low yeah, bar. Yeah, that's a pretty low bar to hit. <laughs> yeah, I want to stay yeah. upright. I can survive on the RDA. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think this paper really points to it. I mean, when you're under stress, if you're dieting or resistance training, those are stressors. Okay. Yeah, they are. They're purposely mm-hmm. purposely applied stressors, which is the whole context of our sports. Like you know, kind of what Mike is saying. So. Um, yeah, most people, if you sit on your ass all day long on the couch, you know, and you binge Netflix and you don't exercise or ever watch what you eat, then you probably do eat too much protein. I mean, think about fast food. It's essentially low quality, greasy meats, you know, and cheeses. There's a lot of protein out there in the Western food supply. So yeah, I mean, the average person probably getting way more than that roughly 15% of total calories, Mm -hmm. uh, that they need, um, in in fact, that's one of the reasons you don't see a lot of messages beyond some of the science we cover here that, hey, are you active? Go eat more protein because the Western diet pretty much covers you there. We're already getting probably double the RDA or nearly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why you don't see billboards everywhere like physically active, go eat more protein, you know. Um, but again, th- there's utility to all of it. It's filling, it's satiating, it raises your you know, it has a high thermic effect of food and all that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the irony too, that if even that, you know, population who vegging out on the couch all the time, just ate more higher quality protein, they would still do better. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. You know what? That's right. If, if, the, if the bar is upright or not, yeah. not having quash your core, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> then sure. 0.8. That's great. Um, but that's I like Robert Wolf. You know, he made a lot of suggestions. In fact, there's some talks coming up next week at that free ASN meeting. I think oh, uh, nice. Hamesfield and I'm, I'm not sure if Robert Wolf, um, but a couple of these guys, you know, these protein researchers and physique um, sort of scientists. Uh, I think they're going to be talking about some of this stuff too. Like, can you do it with vegetable proteins? And it'll be interesting to see what mm-hmm. they say because some of what Robert Wolf has said, Mike, you and I saw it at ISSN one year. Yeah. He was like blowing the doors off of everybody and saying, how about 70 grams in a meal if you want to reduce, you know, um, not just spike synthesis, but reduce catabolism, you know, and stuff like that. And, and again, mm-hmm. is it going to hurt? No, it's probably not. So like like you were saying, if oops, I ate, you know, more protein in this meal than I could use. Like maybe you ate two chicken breasts instead of one. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, maybe that's more than you can use, but it's going to fill you up and it's not going to add to your body fatness probably. I've got hard data on that, and I know Joey Antonio has presented data on that. So, you know. Yeah, it's like, oops, I got a little leaner. Dang it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right, because when your belly's full of two chicken breasts, it's not full of, you know, sugar and junk. End up face down on birthday cake. <laughs> right, yeah. right. All right, let's let's uh, let's go to break. When we come back, uh, we have some papers on uh, genetic changes in muscle tissue and the benefits of fish oils, specifically for athletes.
Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world And create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everybody, we're back, and we're going to go to some questions. Mike put up a post on his Facebook wall, and he's got a couple questions. Uh, Andre LeBlanc, blood glucose and insulin response, are they necessarily proportional? I've tracked my blood glucose sometimes for weeks, tracking before and after meals, as well as at timed intervals after meals, trying to figure out the way my glucose reacts to different meals, and thereby insulin response. A waste of time or no? Mike. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good question, especially if you're trying to, you know, get around some some issues or energy levels or something you have going on. Uh, but I've definitely done it with clients. Usually, have people start with just a good baseline, just AM blood glucose. You know, do that for a couple of weeks, 
Um, if that's in line and everything looks pretty good, and obviously we're not talking about um, pathological ranges, we're just talking about health ranges. If it's out of range, obviously you need to talk to your physician about that. But if it's within range, even if it's you know maybe a little higher, you want to see what's going on. Um, I would do just a general glucose load first. I I use two pop tarts, <laughs> mm-hmm. so have two pop tarts and you know measure your blood glucose about every twenty minutes for a couple hours. See where you end up. Uh, it is obviously going to go up, and that's what you want. But you want to see it come back down within a reasonable amount of time too, you know, two to three hours, depending on who you are, how much you take in. Um, after that, I mean, Rod Wolf has written some stuff too in uh, Wired to Eat about the seven-day uh, blood glucose measurements and carb tests. And what we have seen is that, oddly enough, different types of carbohydrates seem to react differently in different people. Even when we tried to control for around in the same amount. So I've seen this in clients. Uh, my buddy, Dr. Ben House, did this with a lot of uh, bros down in Costa Rica, man, almost two years ago now, maybe. Uh, where we put uh, continuous glucose monitors on them and was just measuring all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, some guys could crush like a pint of ice cream and be fine. Same guy would eat like a small amount of pineapple and his blood glucose would just skyrocket. Um, but he could eat sweet potatoes and he'd be fine. You know, so even higher carby stuff, he was fine too. White rice, no problem. Um, so it does appear to be some differences there. There's a cool study published on Cell a couple of years ago that looked at this, like really cool study. Um, in terms of how does it match insulin, in a generally healthy person, they're probably going to match pretty good. Now, that's the downside of measuring blood glucose is that you're only looking at blood glucose. We don't have any insulin. We don't have glucagon. We don't have anything else. So usually when I have people do it, it's, you know, in first meal at breakfast is what I have them play around with uh, first. Because if you start doing it after training or after movement or stress, then you've got all these other confounding factors in it too. Um, If you are potentially borderline unhealthy, that relationship really kind of falls apart. So I did a study where I got farmed out to the epidemiologic department for a year and a half of my life for a year and a half, two years, something Never got published, but what we looked at is we had a whole bunch of bloods on people who are borderline type 2 diabetic. We had them exercise, non-exercise, all this stuff. When they ran the bloods, we got all the glucose data back first. And the insulin was an ELISA, so it took a little longer. And you're looking at him, you're going, oh, wow, that guy's screwed. That guy's screwed. Look at that. That was sky high. Mm -hmm. And then you get the insulin levels back, and you're like, holy crap. Some of the people who were, were high, but not the highest in the group, their insulin levels were like astronomically high, like just sky high. So their body was paradoxically having a lower blood glucose compared to other people in the group, but it did it by putting out just this astronomical part of insulin. So they're going to be in a world of hurt with that. Um, So I think the only downside is you can only really make the assumptions back to glucose. You won't really know what's going on otherwise. Um, if you go to your physician, you can get an insulin uh, measurement done. It's not super useful because it changes so fast, like minute to minute, second to second. Uh, but you can request something called C-peptide. C-peptide is probably a better 24-hour marker of insulin. So if you think there's something kind of wonky going on and they've looked at all your blood glucose stuff and it's good, uh, C-peptide may be a good marker to run through your physician. Uh, another one to ask him about, which I got from Dr. Brian Walsh, 
is uh, glycomark. So glycomark is a blood test that'll give you an idea if you have a high amount of glycemic variability. You're having these super high uh, blood glucose shoot up and then kind of crash back down. Because uh, that won't show up in like uh, HbA1c, it's like a three-month average, or potentially uh, resting blood glucose. So longer answer than you probably wanted. So I'd say, yeah, worth playing around with. Uh, do AM blood glucose first, and then you can get fancy after that. Nice. And your next one is from Hunter Gonzalez. may seem like an elementary question, and it's something I think we all know the answer to. I just want to ask, daily weight fluctuations, what's the culprit? Mm. Yeah, so I got hung up on this for... God, I, even on most clients, even now, if I can, I'll still try to get a, a daily AM uh, weight rating. I started doing it probably like five years ago just to eliminate some of the variability I was seeing. Because if someone only gets on the scale once a week, and let's say they're a smaller female that weighs 130 pounds, and they've got a little bit of fluctuation, I don't really know if that day was a higher day, a lower day, an average day. I just felt like I was shooting in the dark more often. So I switched to just get on the scale in the morning and just log it. And that way I can now look at the trends because I've got a little bit more data. And most new scales are pretty accurate with body weight. The downside is that sometimes that variability freaks clients out. Um, I wrote an article for the, the Personal Training Development Center. You can look up with uh, Lou Schuler helped with that. And... There's a bunch of stuff that affects it. Like the first thing I look at is just carbohydrate intake. So I've got some people on a template where they have two days that are pretty high, and then the rest of the five days are lower to moderate. That's from some uh, research from uh, Dr. Bill Campbell's lab, who's been on the show here before. And if it's after those two higher carb days, of course it's going to be higher because of uh, glycogen stored water that goes in with the glycogen. It's going to store more water than it is just the carbohydrate itself, the glycogen. Um, but if that's not it, yeah, you could look at hydration levels, especially what type of environment they're in. If they're exercising, they have more fluid loss that they're not replacing. Normally, when I do it first thing in the morning, that's not going to be as much of an issue, which is why I don't like them doing it at other random times during the day. Uh, women, obviously, are going to have a weight change due to just the time of the month. Some women more than others. Um, and even just, you know, sodium levels, if you spike sodium super high and you're not used to it, you know, you can retain a little bit more fluid also. So there's a bunch of stuff that can do it. You know, I've seen stress do it also. Uh, people in general, if they're stressed, tend to accumulate, a, appears to be a little bit more fluid. And that's just looking at, um, heart rate variability and looking at AM, uh, daily weights. So, eh, I, I tell people like, yeah, just do it each day, and we're going to look at the trend each Sunday at check-in. And I'm not going to get anything too crazy about any one uh, measurement. And then we're going to look at some of those factors and see what's going on. The trend's going in the right direction. Yeah, you're probably going to be okay. Um, and last part on that, too, is that what I have noticed is that if you've ever looked at someone who's gained weight or lost weight successfully, you'll notice that it's just not one straight super linear line there's a fair amount of variability from one measurement to the next. And what I've seen is when people get stuck where they can't seem to gain weight if they're trying to do that or they can't seem to lose weight, man, they're like AM body weight measurements, just that fine scale variability just goes away. And they're like, 
uh, 130.1, 130.2, 129.9. There's just like no variation day to day. Um, so if that happens, my first goal is just to try to get some variation in their AM weight and then worry about the direction. Hmm. So I may give them like one or two high carb days, have them train and their weight's going to go up, you know, maybe one, two, three pounds, depending on what we do, sometimes even higher. And it'll stay up for a couple of days and then usually you'll see it drop and then it'll usually hit a newer low. So my first goal with that is just like if you're going to push a car, like you try to rock it back and forth, you're just trying to get some momentum back into the system. You're not really worried the car is actually going forward and then backwards, even if you're trying to get it out of a, a ditch or something. But I think trying to get some momentum back into their physiology, this is a hypothetical meta type argument, I think is a good thing. Because when we see that fine scale variability in every system we looked at go away, whether it's gait, whether it's breathing, whether it's heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, RER, we know you're probably not moving in the right direction. So let's kind of correct that first, and then we'll worry about the direction after that. That's an interesting point, Mike, about variability e equals good, you know? Yeah. Um, almost regardless. You you used a metaphor in one of my classes once um uh, that I thought was good where you said, why do we like live performances? Because they vary yeah. a little bit from the CD, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. um, it's, it's more innately appealing. And so that makes a lot of sense. People are dead, even whether it's BMR or body weight or whatever, that just, it, it feels somehow stagnant, you know, it's not, not yeah. a good thing. And that's what I've seen. Like they're literally stuck. Like they're you're trying to do these smaller changes, and like nothing's really moving. And most of the time, you do smaller change, everything moves, the system responds. You're like, cool. But I don't know because it's you know physiology is nonlinear. At some point, they just for whatever reason get stuck at a certain weight. And so usually, if they're trying to go down, um, I may have them do a fast. But a lot of times, I'll just have them do a carb refeed for one or two days, and. They, I usually tell them ahead of time, you know, I've done it enough. Now I can usually predict pretty close, you know, about how much weight they're going to gain. Right. And you're going to go up, you know, about two pounds for about one or two days. And then it's going to go down. And then day three or four-ish, you'll probably be below where you were before. And then they're not usually as freaked out about it. I've, I've made the mistake before of not telling them that. And they just really freaked out. <laughs> you know, Mike, it's a good point, too. Uh the variation is going to be more likely in people that are large mammals. If you have a lot of muscle mass, oh, yeah. it's right. Muscle mass is more watery by definition than fat mass. And you're going to see people fluctuate up and down. Their carbs go up their, uh They take creatine, something like that. You can easily see three, four, five pound changes in body weight in people, especially when they're more muscular. They're just going to fluctuate more. I mean, let, let's ask Phil, how, how much does your body weight go up and down uh, typically? <sighs> Is like it in a day? Well, you know, like <laughs> day to day, week to week. It, it, it's not dead, dead stagnant, I'm guessing. No, but I mean, on an average day, I go up from morning till at, in the evening, eight to 10 pounds. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hydration, food in your belly, just yeah, be, having it, bigger as muscles. Far as morning, as far as morning weight, you know, one to two pounds is what I'll vary on it. On a daily, yeah. you know, it's it's yeah. it's always within the same range. We're shocked at how much variation there is, even on purpose over the course of a week, and that type of thing too. Um, you know, like Phil was saying, if he's trying to gain weight or lose weight, you know, you're going to see big changes. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in Costa Rica, we did the experiment where four days we trained for two hours a day just to see what would happen. 
And I'm like, well, screw this. I might as well just start eating everything I can find. And it was a controlled intake because we were fed there. Um, but I started day one at 221. And then day four after the experiment ended, I was like 228 in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. And most of that's yeah. water and glycogen, too. Water, yeah. yeah so right. I'm trying to eat all the white rice I can possibly stuff in my face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's a simple lesson that people need to understand. I mean, whether it's creatine going to your muscles or just yeah. glycogen in there, then water is going to follow it. It's water changes this day to day. You're not going to burn enough fat even from an exhaustive workout. You might burn 30 or 40 grams of fat in an hour of cardio. You know, that's not going to show up on the scale. It's, it's not body fatness that's changing from day to day, for goodness sake. Yeah, um, and that's why I think that... The scale obviously is not telling us body composition, but I found if they just use it each AM and I look at their performance and their HRV, I've got a pretty good snapshot of kind of where they're at. You know, if they're more competitive, they can send pictures and circumference and things of that nature. But yep. I find that that's it's pretty good, right? Because if your performance is good, your HRV is within a normal range, you're not super stressed, and your body weight is trending down, yeah, you're probably not really losing that much muscle. You know, it's it's got to be there from fluctuating carbohydrate levels, which will tap out at some point. You know, so the rest has to be coming from body fat at, at, once you get to a certain point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. Yeah, I think a, a lot of what you're saying, whether it's morning glucose or weight or whatever, you, yeah, you take these things as they're suggestive indicators. You know, there's so many other things that are yeah. coming into play. That you really, and that's why I think it's good for people to work with you because you're like, well, let's take a look at this stuff, you know, and you're fasting morning glucose by itself. Or I've actually done that for with kidney function, like a, a one shot, like, um, you know, microalbumin uh, in the morning oh, yeah. um, for, you know, urine and kidney function and stuff. These, these things are just, wow, you got to take them, you know, in context. But collectively, yeah. They, they can be helpful indicators, I think. Uh, yeah. They can play around and do fun stuff. Like I took my blood glucose yesterday morning, was 71, did a half hour of about just light fasted cardio, was 74. And then I sat in 44 degree water for almost five minutes and it was 54, I think. <laughs> wow. Those are low, man. Those are low numbers. Um, yeah. I mean, not yeah. bad low, but you know. no. Wow, no, but yeah, definitely a lot lower than they were before I did my whole little uh, eight-week cardio experiment. They're usually running in the eighties-ish, yeah, you know, low eighties. You know, yeah, bad, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? In fact, the the poster that we're going to present next week, a lot of the the blood sugars we were using an off-brand of um, test strip, and I think you got to mm-hmm. be cautious because I mean, for yes, compa- for for comparisons from day from day to day, if you're using the same brand, if you're controlling everything, you're just looking at, at delta score, change scores. Yeah. It's not a problem. But a lot of the students, and I was wondering how much of this is artifact from the off brand of test strips we were using, but their fasting blood sugars were around ninety a lot, um, and I'm like, I don't think either. A these are systematically overestimating, maybe. Uh, and again, it doesn't create a problem if it's systematic like that and you're looking for changes of coffee versus decaf or whatever on different days. But, geez, maybe they're under a little extra stress too. Maybe there are some other things at work. So, yeah, just pro tip, anybody, if you ever check your blood sugar, uh, even if it's a compatible test strip, 
it might give you numbers that are five or ten units higher. Um, so, yeah, if you want to get really crazy, like if I'm really trying to control stuff, I'll actually buy a whole bunch of the same lot number and I'll check the lot numbers on them, right? Because they tend to be less variable within the same lot. But now you start getting even the same brand, even the same type of device, comparing one lot to the next. You know, you'll still be okay. I mean, you're still going to be in the ballpark. You're not going to see changes in the U.S. scale of, like, 15 points that are from it. You know, but people send emails. They're like, I was 71, and I was 73. Oh, my God. It's like, that's, that's well within the measurement error. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Honestly, um, it's not hard. You can ju- you can figure out the, the coefficient of variation. You could just get three yeah. finger pricks or just do things in duplicate or triplicate. But the standard deviation divided by the mean, you could do this in Excel. Like we know that even with these uh, cheaper test strips we're using, the, the, the CV was like way under 5%. So, yeah. you know, it, they're doing their job. They're just systematically showing numbers a little high kind of thing. And, and anyway seen high numbers like in the 90s in younger athletes like i wouldn't say routinely but more often than not and what i've seen is uh, 70 80 percent of them was uh, sleep and stress once we got their sleep and stress kind of somewhat normalized a lot of times they were in the the low 80s pretty routinely well that's why i didn't worry too much about the numbers that we put in the abstract because i thought you know you guys you you sleep for crap you 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 kids sleep like six (laughs) hours a night you know um and so some of it is real uh anyway um all right just quickly let me jam through these last two uh studies here this is from bagley and colleagues journal strength conditioning research epigenetic responses to acute resistance exercise in trained versus sedentary men now this is mechanistic and sometimes we do delve into this it's you know it's cool to learn how things work um and the conclusion is funny because phil's gonna you're gonna roll your eyes you're like hey thanks for that you know but um it says acute resistance exercise alters dna methylation which is an epigenetic process that influences gene expression So their purpose was to examine DNA methylation in response to acute resistance training in sedentary uh, and in resistance trained young men. So they actually took a biopsy from the side of their thigh, the vastus lateralis, at baseline 30 minutes after lifting and four hours after lifting. And the lifting session was three sets of 10 at 70% of 1RM, leg presses and leg extensions. Uh, So reasonable. They used real-time polymerase chain reaction, so PCR. Results showed that acute resistance exercise hypomethylated uh, uh, um, this marker of global methylation. So an under-methylation in resistance-trained but not in sedentary dudes. Um, It did not affect methylation of genes associated with inflammation, however, like interleukin-6 or uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF-alpha, did not affect genes associated with hypertrophy, like mTOR-related genes. So these findings indicate that the same resistance exercise stimulus can elicit different epigenetic responses. So again, turning genes on and off differently in resistance-trained versus sedentary men and provides a mechanism underpinning basically the need for, and this is where Phil's going to grin, I think, but Mm -hmm. underpinning the need for different training stimuli based on subject backgrounds. 
Mm. <laughs> so you don't say. Yeah. yeah. So like, <laughs> so Phil doesn't just hand out a template. <laughs> yeah. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, like like Big Brian is it like here you lift like this same as the high school baseball player you know. Yeah. <laughs> so different genes getting turned on and off depending with you're trained or not trained kind of reinforces right that we are weird (laughs) compared to the gen pop um i'd love to see a follow-up study which seems obvious to all of us where they take that trained group and they actually give them a pretty heavy resistance stimulus and i would assume that those same genes would light up then correct if you get the stimulus high enough, even though they're trained, right, to, you should be, in theory, seeing everything else turn on. Yeah. So it would be oh, interesting to think. see if that, yeah, if that lines up with what they're looking at. Yeah, they controlled both uh, intensity, 70%, and volume, 3 by 10. Yeah. But, yeah, three sets of 10 for yeah. Phil's group, that's, There's nothing. that's laughable. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's not enough of a stressor. That's true. It is interesting, though, that they talked about like an under methylation, like across the board uh, in resistance trained uh, took place, but not in the sedentaries. So, yeah, just it's neat that they can actually look at the not just the the substance like, you know, the cytokine like IL-6 or something like that, but the gene that's going to create it um, and how that changes depending on the workout. But, yeah, it's a good point, Mike. It'd be neat to control this for. I don't know, like perceived exertion or somehow scale it, you know, so it's not fixed intensity and volume because, yeah, relative to someone's experience, it might not even be a stressor. Well, I mean, this goes back to it's like the same the twist I've taken from the start. Like I had two new people start this week. And one of the first things they noticed is we you have us do much less than everybody else. Mm. And that's because. They're new. You know, they yeah. can't handle the stressor. And it's like from the start, I've tried to take a twist in my facility to where hey, being able to do more stuff is a positive thing. It's not looked upon like, oh, man, now I got to do more stuff. It's like well, you, you earn that right. You earn the right to be able to do more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a positive twist on that from the start. Which, I mean, that could just be mental. But uh, it's it's making them understand that, hey, do this right, and in time, we'll give you more. You know, and you know, even with the biops and stuff I use, hey, you killed those. Let's take a couple jumps up. You know, you earned that right, or you didn't today. You know, so yeah, but yeah, everybody's everybody's definitely different. I mean, new people, I'd be an idiot if you know. Okay, you're brand new. You're training with Brian. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just go set for set with him. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Have your phone handy. Here's 911. Yeah. You know, 911. <laughs> 9 and 1 are already typed in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all typed in. So you because you're not even going to be able to type this when you're done. <laughs> yeah. Just press send. Yes, yeah, send. Yeah. 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 Uh, it, did, it It is interesting. They also talked about um, it, it didn't affect the methylation of genes specific to hypertrophy. Um, I don't know. Yeah, obviously more research is going to be needed for this kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, it's interesting, Phil. You're kind of doing – it's it's biological and, and like, psychosocial because not only can they not handle it – and I mean that in a nice way. I mean, you know, they're new. 
but yeah. they're chomping at the bit by the time you say, hey, you get to do four sets today instead of three of this. <laughs> you know, it's like, woohoo. Uh, last one before we uh, end out for today, almost out of time. Are there benefits from the use of fish oil supplements in athletes? A systematic review. This is by Nathan Lewis and colleagues, Advances in Nutrition. And I like how this starts because my hard drive is full of hundreds of studies on fish oils. Okay. So it's, it starts by saying, despite almost 25 years of fish oil supplementation research in athletes uh, and widespread use by the athletic community, no systematic reviews of fish oil supplements have been conducted. So, again, in That's athletes. Crazy. Um, I know, like, somebody's got to start to kind of compile this, right? Um, of the 137 papers identified through searches, 32 met their inclusion criteria. Athletes varied in classification from recreational to elite. And I, I like that they, they know what they're talking about, right? We were just suggesting that. Like, you can't – that's why you don't roll out templates, whether it's for a training program or nutrition. You have to do some baseline, you know, assessments. Anyway, um, recreational through elite – Mean age was 25 years. 70% of the, the subjects in these randomized controlled trials uh, were males, I believe. Uh, so not exclusively males. We report consistent effects of fish oils on reaction time, mood, cardiovascular dynamics, and skeletal muscle recovery. Mm. Also, the pro-inflammatory cytokine TNF-alpha and post-exercise NO responses. So, you know, I suppose you could consider that basal dilation. No clear effects were found on endurance performance, lung function, muscle force, or training adaptation. In one sense, I actually find that a positive, right? That if there's not an effect on training adaptation with fish oils, that might be good because years ago there was speculation that because fish oils can blunt, yeah. uh, like prostaglandin E2, yeah, and some of these things, that they might actually reduce gains. And this says no. Um, also, few negative outcomes were reported. So, uh, kick ass. I mean, we, you know, according to this, it's just validation stuff. It's kind of like what the chicken versus beef stuff we started the, uh, the show with. But I'm not going to stop taking my fish oils. There's too much data. Um, and, and the Western food supply doesn't supply it. So, um, yeah, pretty cool stuff. I, I, I need to dig into this actual full paper and see, like, what percent improvements in stuff like reaction time, mood, yeah. muscle recovery, uh, stuff like that. So with all the talk about COVID-19 lately and how things like medium-chain triglycerides or fish oils might help prevent some of these cytokine storms and all that, uh, it's just – yeah, this is more validation, I guess, that, you know, we're, we're doing something right. All right. I, that's Very a lot. Cool. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you all. Thank um, you. And we'll, some heavy things. Yeah. Ooh, nice. So, all right. Cool. See you next time. Till next week. See you, guys. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and 
choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.